Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome again, everybody, to Talking to Change, a Motivation Division podcast. My name is Glenn Hines, and I'm in Derry, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Sebastian Kaplan. Hi, Seb. Hey, Glenn. How's it going? Yeah, it's going the best. Today, we're joined by Dr. Alan Zukov, and we're really looking forward to talking to Alan. In our emails beforehand, Alan promised us to have sore heads by the end of this, so that should be interesting. Uh, we know from talking to Alan previously in New Orleans and our own experiences of him through the Mint, we fully expect people to learn an awful lot from Alan's depth of wisdom and experience. But before we go on with that, Seb, maybe you'd like to just remind people how they can contact us in the different formats and the different platforms. Absolutely. Uh, so there's a few ways to contact us and to send us questions and feedback. Uh, our Facebook page is Talking to Change. On Twitter, uh, the handle is at change talking. Uh, you can send us emails, direct emails, and that address is podcast at glennhines.com, G-L-E-N-N-H-I-N-D-S.com. Also, I guess it's safe to say, but people probably already know this, but if you're listening on iTunes or Stitcher or one of those other platforms, there's ways to live feedback and ratings and such. So we welcome all of that. So those are the, the various ways to contact us. And we've been, uh, Glenn and I, you and I talked a few days ago in preparation, both for, for this episode with Alan and just talking about the podcast in general and how it's going. And one of the things we were talking about, which we wanted to mention now, is that much of what we've been discussing would pertain certainly to a counselor slash therapist type of professional person. And, but we, we certainly don't want to limit the podcast to that audience. There's a lot of motivational interviewing being done in other settings. And in particular, what we discussed were healthcare settings where physicians or nurses or other healthcare professionals have different kinds of interactions and relationships with their clients and, and patients. So we're, we're quite interested, right, in, in not limiting the scope and wanting to be sure we're providing information in a way that's useful for much wider range of professional uh, clientele, I suppose, sure. right? Yeah, yeah. I suppose what it was is both of us are coming from professional backgrounds that aren't primary care or in that world. So we're hoping that what ourselves and our guests up until now have been talking about can translate into those environments. Uh, so we're keen to hear back from people who, who are in a primary care role or an allied professional role, their, their own experiences of the content of the podcast and any suggestions they might think would benefit their particular situation. We're very keenly aware of the issue, particularly of brief and opportunistic interventions and where we can maybe talk a bit more about them or explore the mechanics of those types of conversations and in our podcast. So we'd be very keen to hear from anybody in relation to that, some feedback that would be fantastic. And 
I suppose it's, we're also celebrating at the fact that, we, and we really appreciate that uh, almost 10,000 people now have listened to all the previous episodes before today. So thank you everybody who's come along and listened to one or more of the episodes. It's uh, we're, we're delighted by that. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's, uh, it's fantastic. It's humbling and uh, makes it all that much more enjoyable that people are, are listening and hopefully uh, learning and enjoying it. Yeah, fantastic. So for today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Alan Zukov, who is Vice President for Clinical Program Development at Vital Decisions, a company that provides MI-based telephonic advanced care planning services to people with life-limiting illnesses. A clinical psychologist by training, Alan spent more than two decades as a member of the Departments of Psychiatry and Psychology at the University of Pittsburgh, where he specialised in the development and study of motivational interviewing interventions in substance abuse, mental health and health behaviour settings, with an emphasis on treatment engagement. A member of MINT, the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, since 1998, he has been Chair of the MINT Board of Directors, Editor of the MINT Bulletin, an online journal, Motivational Interviewing, Training, Research, Implementation, Practice, and a trainer of trainers. In addition to journal articles and chapters, Alan is the author with Dr. Bonnet Gorsak of Finding Your Way to Change, How the Power of Motivational Interviewing Can Reveal What You Want and Help You Get There, the first self-guided application of Motivational Interviewing published by Guildford Press. Alan, it's a joy to have you with us. Thank you for coming. How are you doing? Very well, thank you, Glenn. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Great, great. And certainly anybody who follows the Mint YouTube page will have seen Seb and I speak with you and Tom Barth at the most recent Mint Forum in New Orleans, where you had just presented to the, the forum your questions and curiosities around the mechanics or the depths of the engaging process, one of the four processes of motivation interviewing. And I wondered if it would be okay, we could, we could just revisit that slightly or spend a little time with you given the importance and I think the significance of what it is you're discovering and what it is you're exploring in relation to engaging in a helping conversation. Yeah, sounds great. Okay, so paint the picture for us. Sure. So what, what got us started on this, every, I think of all the processes in MI, engaging is the one that for most practitioners feels most familiar. It's the one that whether you are a, a psychotherapist or a physician or a medical practitioner, or, you know, for that matter, a, a probation officer, that the need to engage and establish the relationship with the person you're working with is sort of a universal. And I think for that reason, many of us, and I include myself, has sort of taken for granted a little bit what engaging, how it really works, what, what it's about, how we do it, and put a lot of more time and energy into the research and practice and of things that are more unique to MI, the evoking process, the sort of you know recognition and evocation of change talk and the influence of change talk on on change. So what got me and and Tom focused on engaging and thinking about wait a second was I actually had a, a member of my training team come to me and ask me an interesting question, which was we have a, a specific way of of measuring clinical practice when it comes to the evoking process. So if we look at the mighty, there's a, there's a global measure of cultivating change talk. And so we can directly 
when we're listening to somebody doing MI, we can directly assess how well, to what extent are they cultivating change tolerance. My, my trainer came to me and said, do we have something similar for measuring the engaging process? And my first reaction was, well, sure, we measure empathy, we measure partnership, but the more I started to think about it, I realized those are things that are not only specific to engaging, right? That, that underlies everything we do in MI. Those are part of the evoking process as much as they are part of the engaging process. And, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I think my answer to my, her question was no, we, maybe we don't, we're not in the same way. And so that got me curious. And I started talking with some other mentees, people I'd known, many who, who were mentees for a long time, experienced trainers. And I started asking them, well, how do you teach engaging? How do you think about it? How do you teach it? And what I found was that a lot of what they were saying back to me was different from the way that I was thinking about it or the way I was training it. Mm. And that really struck me, you know, how is it possible? We all think we know what it is. And yet there seem to be some different ideas about what exactly goes into engaging. How does it work? What's the nature of the process? So that really got me intrigued. And then as I talked with Tom Barth, Tom also became intrigued. And that's what led us to sort of come back to the process and ask ourselves, but what do we know and what do we think? And, and what are some of the questions we don't really have answers to yet? Mm, wonderful. It, it also reminds me in a big picture sort of way, I guess, how a lot of what we maybe come to know about MI or even hearing Bill's early stories about how he came to MI, it, was, it wasn't some really highly planful endeavor. It kind of stumbled across it to an extent, not that it was random you know, behavior on his part, but your thinking about it came from this question and it got you thinking in this direction that you didn't necessarily set out to do. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and here we are now really starting to dig deeper into something that, like you said, people have been maybe taking for granted for some time. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There is always, I think, often in our in the MI world, this sort of sense of serendipity or sense of sort of stumbling onto things and realizing, oh, we thought we understood this, but now we take a closer look at it and maybe we're not so sure. We Seemingly simple questions don't necessarily have obvious answers. Right. And you mentioned what triggered this curiosity for you was when you spoke to people that different people explained it in slightly different ways and I was wondering could you give us some examples of what it was that where there was a variance for, for you or and what were the similarities that that you're now beginning to explore yeah absolutely that's I, I think it's a really interesting question I, I think the similarities I think are the ones we would expect right so everybody agrees that empathy that empathic listening that support for autonomy affirmation the core spirit and related skills are all central to, crucial to in establishing engagement and to the engaging process. So what differed, the thing that really stood out to me was when I asked people, do you think of engaging as a non-directive or non-directional process or as having more direction? And I had got, come in with the thought Engaging is sort of the, the non-directional moment of MI, that when we start an MI conversation, before we begin to focus in on a specific area or behavior, and before we're evoking change talk and trying to help build motivation, 
we're starting with a relatively non-directional, open-ended conversation, just trying to establish some mutual understanding, right? Mutual respect. And what I found was that when I talked to, actually, when I talked to Tom, and when I talked to a couple of other people, Denise Ernst, for example, I don't think she'd mind my mentioning her name because we've had this conversation openly. Both of them said, no, I, I don't think it's really that non-directional. I, I think it's a, we're already beginning to be directional even when we're engaging. Hmm. And they talked about it in different ways, but the fact that that basic uh, a question that we had different perspectives on it was really interesting to me. And honestly, that was the thing that really kind of piqued my, my interest and said, wait a sec, I got to spend a bit more time on this. And so directionality in MI is often framed around a behavior, you know, reducing smoking or drinking or something like that, increasing physical activity. When you talk about directionality in the engaging process, do you mean you're already kind of dialing into one of those behavioral frames or is it direction in some other way? Yeah, right. So that, that's the really interesting question. So when I realized that some of this was a little fuzzy and that we, I didn't have this agreement, my instinct always in this situation is to start by going back to the, the foundational texts, right? So my instinct was, let me go back and actually look in MI3 and, and let me now take a relook at, you know, I hadn't reread that chapter on engaging in a long time. Um, let me go back there. Let me see what are they actually saying about it. And what I found was that they actually do say, similar to the way I had been thinking about it, they say, during the engaging process, there is no particular direction involved. We're not necessarily using ORs in a goal-directed manner. So my first thought was, yeah, this is this, that was my original idea that it is not directional, that it's just, we're willing to go sort of anywhere with the client at that point, And we're not yet trying to shape the conversation in that more focused way that allows us to actually begin to work towards building motivation. But interestingly, as I've talked with others about it, and, and as Tom and I put our talk together and and he and I began going back and forth, thinking together about what we wanted to say, I've actually become, sort of begun to come more to the other side of, the, of that debate, so to speak. And I do think there's a directionality to engaging, but as you suggested, Seb, it's not the same kind of directionality as you find in the evoking process. We are, I think, going somewhere. Right. We're not purely non-directive or non-directional. If a client were to come in at the beginning and talk about things that are, well, I, I should say most of us when we're doing MI, not all of us, but in most settings, we're already in a setting where there is an assumed focus. We might be in a drug and alcohol treatment clinic. We might be in a medical setting, and so we're doing medical treatment. We might be in a criminal justice setting. And so at some level, there's already some expectation that we're not there to talk about just any old thing. And most of us, I think, if we're doing MI and a client comes in and begins to talk about something completely unrelated to the presumptive reason we're there, we are likely to look for the opportunity to begin shaping the conversation to see, to talk about, well, where do you stand with regard to this issue or this problem or this concern? In other words, another way to say that might be is a lot of times when we're doing MI, we're not first engaging and then focusing. 
we're actually doing a certain amount of engaging and focusing at the same time. There's an interplay right. almost from the start. Uh, I know when I go back and look at some right. of the well-known demonstrations of MI on video by Bill or Steve or Terry Moyers or others, and I look at my own practice, not long ago, I had a chance to uh, have an instance of my own practice recorded. I was doing a, a, a seminar and it was being recorded and I had a volunteer come up and we did a real MI conversation. We did this for about 20 minutes and then I looked at the recording and I realized that I was engaging and focusing almost in, in an intertwined way within the first few minutes. So I think that's one element of it. Um, I think there are a couple of other, other elements of it, but I'm going to pause and give you guys a chance to mm. ask the questions. So in some ways, it, it, it reinforces the the conversations that we've happened before, which is even though the four processes are very often in a diagram set out in, in a stepped mm -hmm. process, that, that they're not that linear in that sense, that, that there is that mix and flow between each. The notion of, of describing engaging a separate from focusing is really to inform the practitioner about what is it that needs to happen at some point, ideally at the beginning, that then flows through the rest of the conversation, which is the connection that they're making with this other human being who happens to be coming to them for whatever purpose in their professional role. And when you were looking at it from a directional versus non-directional process, the idea of it was that are we simply warming them up and because of that, there is no particular direction we're going in. And what was interesting when you were saying that when you first mentioned the, the difference between directional and non-directional, the thought was, for me, direction very often includes the notion of an agenda. So that I, as a practitioner, when you come to see me, ultimately my agenda is to get you to talk about the issue that we're here to talk about. And for that reason, I am approaching you with purpose. And th that in itself would suggest that I am being directional, I am being purposeful, I have an agenda. Uh, it's coming from a good place, hopefully, that's coming from a place where I'm invested in the spirit of the approach, but ultimately it is that I want you to feel safe with me, I want you to feel comfortable with me, I want you to be able to lower your guard with me, and as a consequence of that, I will do whatever I can to create that environment for you. We, we sometimes mix up just being nice to someone and checking that they've, they found the car park okay and the, the waiting room wasn't too bad for them. And then we just get into, right, let's talk about your drinking, let's talk about your drug, let's talk about your diabetes. Um, and what you're saying is that we need to spend a bit more time to ensure that the person's actually connected to us or as Bill would describe, the, the join up, we're, we're on the same page. And then we move on, the more of the focus I think, I think exactly so, Glenn, and thinking about how working in a, a counseling context might be different in some ways than someone who's working in a medical setting, uh, uh, in a medical context, you can see those differences in two sort of classic demonstrations of engaging and focusing in MI by Bill and by Steve, the, the one by Bill known as the silent man video that's which is the opening 10 minutes of a conversation with a not very verbal gentleman. Um, and then uh, the Bill uh, Steve's uh, uh, BMJ demonstration video of having a conversation with uh, a patient who's been referred by their doctor um, to about their weight and their eating. 
uh, in the in in the medical setting, Steve begins the conversation almost immediately by saying, "I wonder if we could take a few minutes, ask you a little bit about your weight." In Bill's demonstration, it's probably seven, eight, nine minutes of just inviting the client to sort of talk about what brings him in in a very general way before the conversation begins to focus in more on a particular incident and a particular potential behavior. Hmm. So I think the timing may be different and you may see a clearer progression in a counseling setting or any setting where you have more time versus in a setting where you may only have five or 10 minutes to talk with someone and so necessarily you're needing to move fairly quickly into the meat of the conversation. But those two emphases, the emphasis on can we agree on a focus, but also, as you were saying, Glenn, can you experience this as a safe environment, mm. place where you can feel enough trust in me and enough safety with me to be willing to talk in a really open and unguarded way to allow me to explore things with you. And that may happen after the initial focus is introduced. So it may be you're starting with a kind of focusing, I wonder if we could talk a few minutes about your weight. And in that example that in Steve's demonstration video, the response of the, the patient is, well, are you kidding me? You know, I'm, I'm not, I don't wanna go there at all. It's, mm. And the next minute or two is Steve really being very attuned to recognizing this person does not trust me. He does not right now feel at all willing to talk in an open way with me. He's feeling defensive and doing things to engage before he then tries to go any further. Whereas in Bill's demonstration, he begins very broadly what brings you in starts with almost pure non-directive empathic listening and then very, very gradually begins to funnel down to a more particular focus over the course of those first 10 minutes. Right. Yeah. And that, that BMJ online resource is a, an online webinar of sorts or, or a mini course even. And you just, you just have to have a password and register for it. It's free, uh, but I would recommend it. It's interesting because I, I think what we're suggesting maybe is that direction that direction may go beyond a behavioral target mm -hmm. and it's inviting people to think perhaps for the first time about what other directions may be present and so i guess i'm thinking about the work that that i might do so if i were to see somebody for the first time and somebody asked me, well, wh what are your hopes for that initial encounter or the beginning of your conversation there? I, I suppose I would say something like, I, I hope to understand this person's point of view. I would hope to understand what this person is trying to share with me. I hope this person perceives me as someone who's curious about them and approaching them in a non-judgmental way. And yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I had, and when, Glenn, you're talking about creating a safe environment and, and hoping that person feels safe with me in the in the room or this whatever space we're working in. And yeah, I guess I never really quite thought of those as directions per se. They're certainly part of my agenda, I guess, as a, as a practitioner, though. Exactly. And I guess maybe a, maybe a more uh, amenable way of talking about it would be to say that we do have goal. We do have a goal. Hmm. In, the, in that part of the encounter. It's not, the goal is not 
hoping to build motivation or, or, or help the person change. The goal is to establish a certain kind of relationship. Right. But if we have a goal, if we're trying to achieve engagement, which is also the way Bill and Steve talk about it, you know, that engaging is the process and engagement is that point at which the person is feeling mutually respectful and trusting relationship, is feeling uh, a sense of alliance and partnership, is willing to be open with us. Uh, if we have a goal, then in theory, we could specify, well, what are we looking for? If we're looking for change talk when we're evoking as markers or signs that a person's motivation for change is increasing, what should we be looking for during the engaging process? What are the markers mm. or the indicators right. while we're engaging, either that engagement is building and is, is becoming established or that it's not. And I think that, that it's not part in one sense is sort of easy. I mean, certainly if there's discord, then that's a clear indicator that, that this person is not trusting us, not feeling safe. That's the interpersonal tension that tells us we don't have engagement yet. Mm. And I would argue that we should not be trying to do anything at that point other than diffuse the discord because if we don't have engagement, we're not gonna be able to, engagement is the foundation for doing anything else. Tom Barth made the really interesting suggestion or sort of speculation of, I wonder if there's something we could identify as engagement talk. Mm -hmm. Are there particular kinds of talk, things that clients would say, forms of speech or categories of speech that we could look for as indicators that engagement is happening? And if so, what would those be? I think that's a really interesting idea. And then a third idea, which is actually mine, which came from a study I did a long time ago, a qualitative study that was actually my dissertation study, um, where I looked at the client's experience of MI. From what I found there was that there's a process that happens what we, what we now call engaging, this is before we had the language of the four processes that I did the study, where the client is doing a sort of implicit testing. That, in other words, at the beginning of the conversation, the client's focus is not on himself or herself. The client's focus is on us. Right. And the question, that it, the, the, the question they have is, can I trust this person? Is this person going to judge me negatively? Or is this person going to try to control me? And it was those two things that emerged really clearly as gauges of psychological safety. The fear, the, the absence of negative judgment and the absence of efforts at control. And it's only when the, when the practitioner passes those tests, responds in a way that conveys clearly to the client, I'm not going to try to control you. I'm not going to judge you or criticize you for whatever you are doing or saying, that it's only at that point that the client's focus shifts right. from the practitioner to themselves. Mm. And that's when that potentially could be measured using the, a measurement of self-exploration that was part of the early measurements developed by Rogers, Carl Rogers and his, his students that that shift is the indicator of engagement. That's what we should be looking for. 
So in some ways, it's recognizing that as practitioners, it shouldn't shock us that people who come to see us have some reticence, particularly if it's the first time they're meeting us, that they have some reticence about the nature of who we are and, and the relationship that could be created for them. And that the markers that you're describing are the absence of engagement. There's markers to show I'm not engaged yet. So there is discord, there is disagreement, there is a lack of trust. Here's the markers. And it's when you start to see these soften that, that in itself may be an indication that this person has stopped judging us as potential threats and begun to experience us as potential allies. And then everything will change. It's almost like, I suppose, anticipating the likelihood is the reason why they've come to see us is that their own efforts to make this change in their life have been unsuccessful. And for an awful lot of people that are coming to see us, there are other people in their lives who care an awful lot about them, telling them how to be different and giving them ideas of how they should do it. And that ultimately undermines their sense of autonomy. So there's an expectation that potentially we will repeat that process. And when we don't repeat that process, that us being different in that way creates the opportunity for change to begin. Yes, exactly right, Glenn. I like that a lot, the way you've said that. I think I would add another wrinkle to it. The pressure that people are often feeling when they come to us, some of it clearly will become that the pressure to change, the pressure to, to make a decision that they've been having trouble making, some of it almost always is coming from well-intended people in their lives who see that they're suffering, see that they're struggling, uh, are concerned about them and are in one way or another trying to get them to change. And that yes, they naturally will expect that we're gonna do the same thing And so we have to demonstrate through our empathic, affirming, autonomy, supportive, responding that we are going to create, have a different kind of relationship with them. But I think there's also an internal pressure and the same dynamic goes on between the person and others in their life is often going on between the person and themselves. The two voices in our own head, Mm -hmm. right? The one voice that says, come on, what's wrong with you? Why, why can't you get with it already? Why are you so long? Why are you still doing these things that are not good for you? And the other part that says, but it's too hard, but that's easy to say, but I'm not ready, but I don't know. And that same dialogue goes on inside our own heads. Right. And so with it going on both internally and externally, that's what the client is very often bringing to our office, our consulting room, uh, you know, whatever place we encounter the client. And they are expecting us to play the same role, right? To, to be one of the, take up the role of one of those voices, whether it's outside their head or inside their head, hmm. the role that says you have to, you need to, what's the matter with you? And what's really damaging about that, of course, is if we do that, or if we're perceived that way, we're actually just reinforcing the self-criticism, self-judgment, and self-pressure that the person has very likely already been engaging in. That is actually contributing to their being stuck. Right. That's making it impossible for them to resolve the ambivalence and move forward. 
Sure. And that certainly was one of the revelations that came to me early in my learning of motivational interviewing and, and something that we spend some time with when, when training practitioners now in MI is that that well-intentioned effort to make someone different by offering them the reasons or the advice to make the world a better place in itself is counterproductive mm-hmm. because exactly. we've taken on one side of, of an ambivalent argument that chances are this client is already having with themselves. And where they are already pressuring themselves and they are already very likely feeling bad about themselves. So it reinforces both the pressure and the negative self views, the negative self talk that very often the person has already been engaging. It strikes me it it may give us a natural segue into one of the other topics we were planning to explore today. Alan, you described and, and Glenn as well, the the kind of back and forth that a client might experience from the well-intentioned loved ones in their life. And then Alan, you emphasize that it's actually a process that happens internally with them. It is very likely a process that's similar to what happens with us as practitioners, that we may want to really nudge and push and pull people in certain directions. And at the same time, when we're practicing in a motivational interviewing consistent manner, there's this very important term of autonomy support that we're trying to uphold. And uh, Alan, maybe you can talk a little bit about that dilemma that the practitioners have in going in a particular direction and influencing clients in certain directions while also supporting their autonomy to make these choices for themselves. As with many things, I'm gonna actually start where you just started, Seb, and then I'm gonna complicate it. a little further because I think there's there's sort of two aspects to this tension that you're that you're describing between autonomy support and influence when we're practicing MI. I think where as you describe, we're sort of in a way fighting with or wrestling with ourselves, with the part of us that knows that fundamentally what's going to be most effective and most helpful is if we support and help the person feel more in control of their own decisions. And that if we begin to lose what Bill uh, likes to call our sense of equanimity, our willingness to accept that the person may not see things the same way we see them, may not be willing to make the changes that we think would be best for them and to be really okay with that, to be really willing to accept that it's their choice and that ultimately that's as it should be, that each person should be the one making those decisions for themselves. When we lose our equanimity or we're wrestling with our desire to influence, I think that's a challenge that we can address through training and coaching and self-reflection to kind of recenter ourselves, Mm. to remind ourselves of why do we believe that supporting autonomy is important? Why do we believe that the effort to intentionally influence somebody in a particular direction is ultimately going to backfire or be less effective in helping them change than supporting, not only supporting, but expanding their sense of autonomy? And I think that distinction is a valuable one, and it can be found 
in the an old version of the motivation of the viewing treatment integrity scale, not the current version, um, autonomy support was coded or measured using a global measure rather than counting autonomy supportive behaviors the way we do now in the mighty four. In the mighty three, we would listen to a conversation and globally ask to what extent is this practitioner supporting this person's and respecting this person's autonomy. On the mighty four, it's a five point scale and you would score a four if you were autonomy supportive, but you could only score a five if you had markedly expanded the client's sense of self-control, self-governance and freedom. Mm. I, I think all of us can probably conjure examples of this in our own lives. You can I mean, think about a time when somebody was supportive and respectful of your autonomy and how that affected you. And then think of a time when you felt that someone had actually, you, you left a conversation or an encounter with somebody feeling more autonomous than you did when you started. Hmm. Feeling more that you were the one in control of your own life, more that you have the legitimate right to make your own decisions, more able to trust your own intuitions, your own judgment about what's right for you. Hmm. And I think those are different experiences. And I think that latter experience is more profound, more powerful. And I think there's good reason to believe that it is actually independently a predictor of change. Right. That when people, and of course, this goes back to Carl, to Carl Rogers and his original theory of counseling upon which MI is, is, is founded, that if it's true that we have a natural tendency towards self-enhancement, growth, self-actualization, and that we do best and we're most likely to thrive when we trust our own judgment right. about what is good for us and mm -hmm. what enhances our growth. If that's true, that anything that interferes with our self-trust, our trust in our own judgment is going to make it harder for us to grow and thrive. And anything that enhances or strengthens that trust we have in ourselves is going to make it easier for us to grow and thrive. It's going to facilitate that. As you described that, like expanding the sense of self-autonomy and self-control, I would imagine that in that type of conversation that what I would be receiving from the person who was listening to me was affirmations beyond the presentation, affirmations of the nature of how I got here, brought to my attention the things that potentially I'm already, I'm simply taking for granted about my nature or my abilities or my skills and the way I, I have navigated my life to date, and that by affirming them, it brings it much more to my attention and elevates my sense of self. I agree, absolutely, Glenn. I think, I think there are actually a number of ways 
that we can help facilitate that kind of expansion. And I think those kind of more powerful affirmations are, are, are a very important way. Mm. Uh, affirmations, not of a particular behavior or a particular choice, but of who the person is yeah. and conveying in, in affirming that sense that we are looking up to that person, mm. not that we're not praising them, which is always a relationship of looking down at someone, ironically. If I praise you, then I'm setting myself up as your judge and I'm saying, hey, you're terrific. Right. But if I'm truly affirming, I'm coming from below rather than above. I'm admiring. The word I like for when I'm teaching affirmation is that I want to be expressing admiration right. for the person that I am working with. And the person can feel that I'm admiring who they are, how they are, what they bring. Mm. Mm. Because when I'm admiring someone, I am genuinely looking up to right. them. Right. Yeah, and it's a lovely reframe from the notion of compliment. And it's there's a similarity, but I think that the practitioner's intention is very different. Uh, yeah, that's nice. That's, that's a nice way of I understanding. I think so. And I, I think in addition to the specific affirmations we offer, I also really feel that this autonomy expansion effect occurs when we are completely committed to and consistently all through the conversation, putting the client in the driver's seat, deferring to the client's judgment, resisting the temptation to offer advice when we have not yet fully explored whether the client has his or her own ideas about how they might be able to accomplish something. Um, prioritizing their ideas over mine. That if every time we're talking about something and the client says, Gee, I don't really know what to do about this. And my response is, so just in, right as we're thinking about it, nothing comes to mind immediately. But I wonder if we were to take a, just kind of take a step back and you had a little more time to just sort of think about this or we could think about it together. I wonder what comes to mind mm. as you're thinking about it now, right? So creating that space for the person to actively be thinking. Mm. And in my experience, nine times out of 10, 95 times out of 100, if I do that, a client who was just a moment earlier said, I don't know what to do, will say, well, you know, now that I think about it, I wonder if, mm. And so by reining in, this is kind of an extreme reining in of the writing reflex. If every time we're talking about a possible way of seeing things or a possible way of making a change, we automatically defer to the client. We automatically emphasize our belief that the client will probably be able to come up with an interesting idea, a, a possibility, something that may fit for them. And I do that all the way through the conversation. Then by the time that conversation is over, that client will have experienced an expansion of their autonomy, right. an expansion of their ability to guide or direct or govern themselves. So in thinking of this distinction between, well, Alan, you used the five point scale there, the, the distinction between a four and a five, say, ways that a practitioner might 
support someone's autonomy in a level four sort of way might, which is still four out of five, it's still pretty- It's still pretty good, great. absolutely. Still good, right? Yeah, no, but, absolutely right. Uh, statements like, ultimately, you're the one that has to decide for yourself whether reducing your drinking is something that makes sense for you. Mm -hmm. So that, that would be a very helpful statement, something we hear a lot in MI conversations. Taking it to a, another level, though, would be not so much providing the choices for a patient or a client or, or emphasizing the reality, really, that it is up to them anyway, mm -hmm. but trying to instill a belief in themselves and maybe inviting them to think about things in ways that they don't really have the opportunity to do otherwise to, to think through problems, to, to try to come to solutions on their own terms in their own ways. And that that's, that's a way to maybe distinguish it. Yes, very much so. And, and I think it could, it could even start with, with as small a nuance as a shift in language from ultimately really you are the one who has to decide to me starting by saying, after listening to all you've said and all, you know, everything you've been struggling with and seeing how much you have already put into thinking about and wrestling with this challenge, I have a, I strongly believe that you are going to be able to make the right decision for yourself as we continue to just have a place to think through this together. Hmm. Right. And so if I start with even just that sort of shift in language to conveying my belief in the person mm -hmm. and then immediately demonstrate that belief that it's not just talk by saying something like, so as you think about this now, and as you think about the things you've tried and where you are with it right now, what are you thinking about? What comes to mind for you about what might be helpful with this or how we might go forward together? in thinking more about this and, and sort of giving you the opportunity to figure out what's gonna be right for you and what the best course of action is. I guess I also hear it as a helpful level four kind of statement is about a specific choice that they may be wrestling with, a specific behavior, mm -hmm. you know, a specific dilemma. A level five speaks to the person's ability to solve dilemmas in their life in general and the skills and the processes that go into that. Yes. Yeah, that's a, I actually had not thought about it in exactly that way, but I think that distinction is really captures it, that it's, it's more that talking about that global ability and then thinking of this situation as just a specific instance mm -hmm. of that more global capacity that you have. Mm -hmm. Sounds like what you're describing is that if I'm working with someone and I want them to believe in themselves, that the important thing is that, that I already do. Yes. That the way we teach people to believe in themselves is by us believing in them. And all we've got to do is communicate that to them in an affirmation or the way we reflect things. And in that environment, that the individual then expands because they're coming out to meet us at the width we can hold them. Yes. And, be, I, and, and exactly, I think, because if Rogers was right, and if we hold that belief, that capacity does exist in the person. Hmm. And so if we, we're, we're not sort of trying to instill a belief that's not already there, right? Right, right? 
we are believing in something truly that we believe it is there. The person may have lost touch with it. It may have been underdeveloped. They may have in a whole variety of ways been given messages or treated in ways that has led them to doubt themselves and to, to doubt their own ability to make these kinds of decisions, to feel unable, but that we fundamentally believe that it's there. Mm. By believing in them, we're creating a space for them to rediscover that capacity that they already have. Mm. Again, it makes me think of people that we've already spoken to you earlier on when we were talking about the ambivalence. What came up for me was the conversation we had with Stan in the third podcast around compassion. And it seemed like you were suggesting that, that when we're talking to someone, rather than taking sides, if we can meet the ambivalence, both sides of the client's internal argument from a, a compassionate place, that that in itself helps them resolve in a kinder way the nature of their own internal conflicts, that the mo their internal world is simply a model of what they have witnessed in their external world throughout their life. The opportunity mm. for us is as a practitioner that we model a compassionate, considerate uh, individual who believes in their worth and believes in their capacity and that that experience introduces the possibility that that then can become part of their own internal dialogue, that when they do have an ambivalent conversation with themselves, it's met with, with less aggression and more consideration. And then you mentioned as well about the practitioners, and I think a lot of people will be hearing things that we're talking about today but you also encourage us to think about the idea of growing as practitioners, uh, and that is through practice, mentoring, and, and self-reflection. And I wonder, building on what but what David had said there in the last podcast about teaching motivation to or learning motivation to was the difference between fluency and mastery. I wonder if you could give any suggestions to people who are listening here who want to continue to grow as practitioners, maybe even from your own experience, what was it that shifted your ability to become more present to the client and to see them in this way so that they had the space to come forward and to grow with you? That's a really interesting question, Glenn. <laughs> um, I, I, if I talk about my own experience, I'm not sure how helpful my own experience might be to practitioners because this is something that, that goes all the way back to my original training, um, my doctoral studies were in a, in, in a doctoral program in existential and humanistic and human, human science psychology. And so I was literally weaned on these ideas right. as, as a brand new trainee. And so I can't ever remember not thinking this way. I mean, I can, but it, I have to go back decades. Or, the, or even more recently, uh, Alan, I imagine that even though you're weaned in these ideas, that you have noticed yourself change and grow. Mm. And, well, I wonder, and I wonder how you go about doing that for yourself that's mm. consistent with this, that, that listeners might be interested, that they could take away and think about for themselves, or even just to invite people to think about how, did, how have you changed the way you do things to be more consistent with the MI spirit? And what, what ways can you be doing it from this point on to continue to grow? Because our hope is that if you're listening to this podcast, your intention and your, and your desire is to develop and grow as an MI practitioner to be as helpful as you possibly can be to the people you can come into contact with. So it's just about, you know, just ideas about what are the things that 
listeners can take away and think, well, maybe I could try mm. that. That isn't about just reading, that it's about the, the development, the in, internalizing of the, moving from fluency to mastery. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I, I can say a couple of things about that. I think um, I, I resonated with particularly was, was what you were saying just now about, you know, continued growth. One of the, the, the sort of venues for me that have been the, the, the most powerful source of continuing growth as a practitioner, as a person, I would say, uh, in my relationships more broadly, has actually been through conversations within the Mint community, uh, often online communications, mm. which so many of us, I mean, these days, so many of us live online in a variety of ways where we're not having face-to-face -face conversations as much as we are having exchanges on uh, various social media platforms or on a listserv or other kinds of virtual settings. And in those settings, what I have become acutely aware of, uh, ever more acutely aware of, is that no matter how much, how self-reflective we are, our blind spots never disappear. That no matter how hard we work to be aware of our effects on other people, the way we're communicating with others and, and the way that our intentions are then being put into practice uh, and how much we might refine or, or improve that, um, that there will always be the possibility of not, of not knowing what we don't know, of not recognizing that in some way we may have said something to someone uh, or said something in a particular way that was perceived by others differently from how it was intended perhaps, or was perceived as not as compassionate or empathic or non-judgmental. And the willingness not only to take but to invite feedback right. from others, hmm. I think is not an easy thing to do because especially when our intentions, we know our intentions are good hmm. and the response we get is, uh, well, what you said was hurtful or insensitive or unhelpful for this reason. Uh, that can be a hard thing to take in, but I think it is the, one of the best opportunities for, for growth mm -hmm. and for recognizing again that whereas we thought we might have been empathic or compassionate or autonomy supportive, that in some way we were not being perceived that way. And we can do that in our work as well, in our clinical work. And this is the thing that I think is scariest for many practitioners but which I think is one of the most powerful things we can do with our clients to be transparent and to invite transparency about our relationship in response mm. to, to pay attention, not only to what our clients are saying, but to the expressions on their faces, to what they're not saying, to the totality of how they're responding to us and asking ourselves about what are we seeing here? What are the indicators? Is trust increasing or decreasing? Is energy one of the things that happens when people 
uh, feel supported in their autonomy is their energy increases. They become less passive, more energized, which is a really interesting phenomenon. And you can see that in people if you're, if you're watching for it. You can see their eyes get brighter. You can see their face light up. You can see them becoming more actively thoughtful and excited about what they're saying. And I think if you're not seeing that, if you're seeing the client become more passive, deflated, less energized, the willingness to actually say to the client, I noticed just now, you know, we were talking in a really lively way. And then I noticed just after I said what I just said, that it, it looked to me like maybe you didn't feel quite as heard. And I'm wondering if there's something I might have said or the way I said it that might have had that effect. And I want you to know that if so, it's really important to me that you're actually willing to share that with me and not try to protect me from that out of your kindness. Mm. And to create that sort of transparency um, and talk about what's happening between us is a really powerful way to learn about our effects on the client, uh, the effects of what we're doing and to grow as a practitioner. A lot of what you're saying here reminds me of something that Bill often says and Bill has written about, which is the best trainers of MI are our clients and the signals and you know, paying very close attention to how our clients respond to us are the best markers of, in essence, how well we're doing. And I, I guess I hear you saying that in a way that, that mm -hmm. through this journey and as you're strengthening your own skills and supporting people's autonomy, that one of the main ways that you know you're on the right track is what the clients, both uh, what they're providing to you in terms of a verbal response, but even the nonverbals, those subtle signals. And then it also made me think that we were distinguishing the, the four and the five of autonomy support, that, mm. that there's a, a distinguishing uh, phenomenon that might happen where we're receiving the feedback from the client and adjusting and knowing if we're on the right track or the wrong track. And, and maybe that's something that ultimately the client begins to experience also in themselves and that back and forth exchange that we have with them that they start to experience that energy that you described, Alan, or they start to notice that for themselves and start to really develop that belief within themselves that we reflect to them as we see that as well. And absolutely, I think you're, I, I, I think you're exactly right, Sebastian. It's, it's one of the ways that when I'm training people who are just beginning to learn MI, one of the things I, I like to say is that if you had to boil M, MI down to its essence, right? If, you know, there, there's a famous story, uh, 10 seconds, there's a famous story from the, the Talmud, the Hebrew, uh, the, the Jewish commentary on the Bible about a person who came to a great teacher, the teacher Hillel, and was sort of a wise guy and wanted to be a little bit of a wise guy and a provocateur. And so he comes to the teacher and he says, I want you to teach me the entirety of the Torah, the Jewish scripture, but I, I want you to do it while you're standing on one leg. And Lyle's response is, okay, he gets on one leg and he says, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. 
And of course, there's much more to it than that, but it can be bracing to try to boil something really complicated down to its essence and then ask, you know, sort of if that's the essence, then how do you build up from that? My essence of MI is as you're talking with the client, if change talk is increasing and discord is decreasing, keep doing whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. And if, well, as you're talking, change talk is decreasing or discord is increasing, do something different. Right. And what I like about that way of boiling it down is it makes it completely dependent upon the client. Mm -hmm. It makes it crystal clear that the client really is, just as you said, our best teacher mm. uh, uh, when we're learning MI. And that ultimately it doesn't matter whether we're doing a particular technique and, hey, I just gave a double-sided reflection or I know that was a a, a well-formed impact statement affirmation or whatever it might be. None of that matters if it's not received by the client in a way right, that increases trust, increases self-trust, invites the client to explore their own possibilities and look towards the future and think about how they want that future to be and how they're going to get there. Mm. That's the simplified version of it. But I, I think if we really take that seriously and we make that the principle of our practice, then we can't help but grow. If we're paying that much attention to how the client is responding to us on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, mm. with every response they make, and we're, we're paying attention to, does this, is this person becoming more engaged with me or less engaged with me? More self-trusting or less self-trusting? More relaxed or more guarded? more contemplative about the future or more self-critical about the past, right? Any of those sorts of differences that we might be thinking about, if, we, if we're monitoring that constantly and we're being guided by that in an ongoing way, our practice is going to change. Right. And it's going to change for the better. Mm -hmm. So if it's working, keep doing it. If it's not, stop doing that to do something else and interesting when you were describing forceps question when the list that you described about the trust the energy their eyes being brighter their face lighting up they're actively thinking uh excited in their speech what came to me was i wonder are they potentially some of the markers that we could look for in the engaging process these are the sorts of things you might want to be looking out for at the beginning is the person looking at you is their tone of voice changed are they getting a bit more excited? So uh, maybe that's useful for people to be aware of is that um, notice where they are and notice the change. Are they moving towards you? Are they moving away from you? If they're that's moving a away, really, really interesting uh, way of thinking about it, Glenn. What this, I'm just thinking about this now as we're talking. It, what, what comes to mind is I think there may actually be a little bit more of a almost, not a cycle exactly, but a, a curve. I think... In that initial engaging, I think we're less likely to see the excitement. Hmm. I think that's what comes once we have engagement and the person is starting to think more actively about their own situation, trust their own thinking and starting to see the possibility of change. Right. And so I think we're going to see that later in the conversation. I think the first signs are more about uh, that the person... Certainly that we see uh, the person seems to soften as you was 
you were saying earlier, there's a, a relaxation. There is more spontaneity. What they're saying often doesn't sound quite as pre-programmed or limited or tight. They're more, they begin to be more willing to change directions as they're talking mm. with you, right? Usually when we feel more anxious, more guarded, um, uh, like I was feeling a little bit before we started today's podcast, I wanted to have it all planned out. <laughs> I had all my notes in front of me and I had all these different things to make sure I didn't forget anything I wanted to say. And of course, what happened as we started talking is I barely looked at, at, at any of those notes after maybe the first five minutes of our conversation. Mm. Um, and, and, and so I, I think it, it's worth noting that this is what we're talking about here is not unique to MI and not unique to counseling, mm -hmm. but that what we're really talking about are the dynamics of human relationships. Mm. Um, there's research, for example, on how intimacy develops. So how do two people who barely don't know each other and then begin to talk with each other how do they go from a very casual kind of interaction to increasingly intimate conversation? And what those researchers find is, is exactly what we've been talking about when we talk about increasing engaging in the MI context or, mm -hmm. or um, people begin with more, more casual conversation, there's less direct contact, there's, the stories are more superficial, they stay on safer topics. Little by little, they may risk saying a little something, a little more personal, and then they pay very close attention to how the other person responds to it. And if the other person responds to it in a way that seems negative or judgmental, uh, then, the then the intimacy does not develop. They stay at that superficial level. But if, if the person responds in a way that's warm or encouraging or, 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 or uh, understanding, uh, or affirming, then they tend to go a little further. And this hap is happening on both sides in intimacy, right? It's going in both directions. Mm. Uh, and in the counseling relationship, there's the obvious difference that it's asymmetrical. We're not sharing our experiences and intimate thoughts and feelings with our clients in the same way as our clients are with us. But I do think that that process of gradually of looking for those markers and signs of trust, relaxation, safety um, is what we should be looking for initially. And then as that begins to happen, then you begin to get the kind of conversation that's more alive, more spontaneous, less predictable, more full of gaps mm -hmm. and moments of sudden insight or, or new ideas. And that's where you start to see the, the eyes brightening, the increasing excitement, that sense of a person kind of coming into themselves. Mm. Keeping an eye on the clock here, I'm going a bit beyond where we'd normally go, Glenn, right? But one of the things that we had mentioned uh, in our discussions before the recording was the notion of self-esteem. Mm. And it seems like we keep coming back to that terrain a bit. Uh, certainly when we were talking about autonomy support and the, 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 you know, the kind of change that level five autonomy supportive statements and those changes that might start um, brewing within a person. Uh, and, and here again now as, as where we just left off and Alan, hopefully it's not too sharp a, a left turn here, but maybe you could talk a bit about your thoughts on 
MI and self-esteem or self-efficacy, other terms that had been much a much larger part of MI, but not so much lately. Uh, uh, sure. No, I don't think it's really, I think it's barely a turn at all, just as you were suggesting, Sebastian, because I, I think so many of these ideas are actually closely intertwined. So when it comes to self-esteem, for me, the interesting thing about the role self-esteem plays in MI is that in the very, in Bill's first paper, the 1983 paper, where he first, you know, what, you know, motivational interview with problem drinkers, where he gave the very first description of what he was thinking motivational interviewing was, he, he actually included increasing self-esteem as one of the four core strategic goals of MI. He, he said they were increased self-esteem, increased self-efficacy, increased dissonance, we would now say develop discrepancy between where I am and where I want to be, who I am and who I want to be, and direct reduction of discrepancy in the direction of change. So self-esteem was front and center, the idea of increasing self-esteem as something that could help to build motivation and, uh, for change in people. And then after the first paper, it virtually disappears. And I've, I've been intrigued by that for a long time. And, and I think I understand some of the reasons why Bill and Steve chose to use a different language. But I think there is a value in thinking in the language of self-esteem and thinking about how we, we do enhance self-esteem and MI for, for a couple of reasons. One reason is that there's now a very large body of research uh, in social psychology that shows that, and, and for those who are interested in this, there's a researcher named William Swan, S-W-A-N-N, who actually published a really nice accessible book probably 15, 20 years ago that's still in print on positive self-use and self-enhancement, the self, what he called the self-enhancement motive, which is really just another way of talking about self-esteem. But there's a large body of research that shows that the motivation to see ourselves positively is one of the most powerful motivations that we have. Hmm. And it's powerful enough that it overwhelms other motivations. For example, we're also motivated to see ourselves accurately. All of us share a desire to have an accurate picture and get accurate feedback about ourselves. But if that accurate feedback challenges our positive view of ourselves, in most cases, the self-enhancement motive will win out. Right. right. That is, we will find a way to explain away or discount the, the accurate feedback in order to preserve our positive views and positive feelings about ourselves. And so if it's a powerful motivation, which I think there's, a, again, a lot of evidence there is, and if we know specifically that it's hard for people to take in challenging information, new thoughts, new perspectives, if those perspectives threaten their positive view of themselves. And having people identify the values that are most important to them, using the values card sort, which is one of my, for me, one of the most powerful things we do, we can do, and it's one of my favorite interventions or strategies within MI. Asking them, when you think about your, whatever the target behavior is, when you think about your drinking or the way you're eating right now or how you, manage your emotions, how does that fit with the value you place on your family, honesty, integrity, whatever it is 
And so when we develop discrepancy that way, that's one of the most powerful ways we can build motivation, right? The hope is the person is going to say, wow, well, when, I, when I look at it that way, I'm realizing that I'm not living up to my own values. I'm not living up to who I want to be. I need to change. But what we also know is that in many cases, and this is what Bill was referencing all the way back in the 1983 paper, interestingly enough, was, is that in many cases, instead of saying that, if the person doesn't feel safe, and if they don't feel, if they, if they don't feel that their self-esteem is secure, if they feel a threat to their positive view of themselves, instead of saying, wow, I really need to change my behavior so that my behavior fits more with my values, they're going to say something like, oh, well, no, that value isn't really that important, or what I'm doing doesn't really violate that value, or they're going to find some way to not to change, mm. but to build and shore up their own positive view of themselves. And there's actually a whole series of studies that were done in the National Cancer Institute testing what's known as self-affirmation theory which showed exactly this. They, they gave people feedback on their smoking, say, showing that their lung volume, their lung capacity you know, was reduced by 40% or was the equivalent of what the typical lung capacity of someone who's 30 years older would be, hmm. doing that to try to motivate them to quit smoking. And what they found was that in most cases, that's not what happened. In most cases, the person just got defensive. They made excuses. They claimed impunity. You know, all oh, those tests don't know what they're talking about. Um, and they didn't change. But if before they did that, they asked the, the client, the person, to spend five minutes writing about one of their values and talking about how they lived that value out in their life. In other words, if they gave them a chance to self-affirm, mm -hmm. remember first, I am a good person. I am someone with value. I am someone who, who does good things and, and can feel good about myself. If they did that for just five minutes and then they were given that feedback on their lung capacity, they were much more likely to resolve to quit smoking and to wow. make it just that five minute. And it's all about self-esteem. It's all about helping people. If you say to me, you know, you really need to change this. It's easy for me to interpret that to mean you're telling me that there's something wrong with me. Right. You're telling me that I'm not okay. Right? right. And even if I tell myself that, if I tell myself, I need to change this. We were talking about the inner dialogue earlier it's really easy for that inner dialogue to happen and for another part of me to say, I don't need to change this, I'm fine the way I am, to, to defend myself against me, right? Against myself. But if, if we pay attention to, if we help people self-affirm, not only affirm themselves, but if we help them self-affirm in the values card sort, if before we give the, ask the values discrepancy question, if before we say, how does your drinking fit with the value you place on your family? If we first ask, how are you already living out the value you place on your family? Tell me about the ways you are living that value. Mm. 
and we give them and invite them to talk about that for a few minutes. And only after doing that, do we then say, and as you think about your drinking, how does that fit with the value you place on? Because we've inoculated them or helped them inoculate themselves against a threat to their self-esteem, they become much more willing and feel much more safe to think about that question and potentially to even be able to say, you know, to be honest with you, it doesn't really fit. I don't think, I don't feel good about what I'm doing. Mm. Maybe I need to start thinking about it. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. It, it, it throws up so many possible extensions of this conversation. And one of the, the first things that comes to my head is, is that the idea of potentially one, one of the ways that we can be understand and sustain talk is that pushback. Is that mm. potentially that when I hear sustained talk, potentially what I'm hearing is the client protecting mm. their self-esteem, mm. which itself is a very positive thing. If we try mm. to understand from the client's perspective is that they're trying to keep themselves where they already are without being further diminished. But, and then that, that, that additional piece, which is then there's the opportunity at that point, maybe what we can be thinking about is, is there's the opportunity to be inviting them to change this conversation, to talk about something that they are doing well, they are they have succeeded at, and then go back to the game in relation to themselves. And you know, it's you know, when I'm think I'm thinking about in a healthcare setting, how do we yep. talk to someone about how they're already keeping themselves healthy and then talk about the behavior that potentially is putting their health at risk. Yes. Wow. Right. Exactly. I I love both of those thoughts, Glenn. You're right. We could you know, if, if we had more time, we could we, yeah. we could probably go off in, in, in some depth and exploring those ideas. I think what's what's all, the only thing I would piece I would add to it is, is that what's really nice about that, particularly in a healthcare setting, is that a lot of what you do to strengthen and support self-esteem also can strengthen and support self-efficacy. When you ask a question like, let's talk about what you're doing well or ways in which you're already taking care of your health, there's, you, you really do have both dimensions to that. There's the part that's saying, I am doing good things and I can feel good about that. And the part that's saying, I, uh, I, I am doing good things and I know how mm. to do some things to take care of my health, right? So you, re you really end up getting that a kind of double effect and, and so I don't think self-esteem should replace self-efficacy by any means. I think self-esteem and self-efficacy are, are, are very often very closely tied together. Yeah. It's also the case that when people's self-efficacy increases, their self-esteem also increases. As they begin to feel more capable, they also feel better about themselves. Mm. I think there's a lot of interactions between the two, and I think we can think about those together and think about how sort of uh, each can be uh, a target, so to speak, or a focus of our intervention. Yeah, I had, I was going in a, a number of different directions there as well. I, Glenn, I really like your comment about sustained talk, or for those who haven't heard that term used in other episodes, sort of the opposite of change talk, I suppose, arguments that a client or a patient might make in order to or in support of not changing yeah. and this is the kind of language while it's to be expected and it probably arises in just about every MI conversation at some level 
Um, and it's something that we pay close attention to when we were not trying to strengthen sustain talk when we're doing MI. It's the kind of thing that for a lot of practitioners, it might elicit a level of anxiety or stress, or it might invite them to want to um, argue against the, uh, the position that a client might be taking. To view it as an effort for the client to hold on to their sense of self or to maintain the level of self-esteem, it, it, it frames it quite a bit differently. And, and perhaps in, I don't know if other people would view it this way, but I guess for me, as I was thinking about that, it, it doesn't invite, I, I don't know that it would invite me to want to change it so quickly or urgent, urgently or argue it away. It, mm. it, it, it lands a bit softer for me, I guess, if I view it from that point of view. Mm. Does that make sense? And, and therefore might, might maintain me in a more helpful position mm. than if I just thought of it as, well, it's, it's the argument to not change, right. you know? Yeah, it's almost like I, you're saying you can hear the positive in the resistance. Yeah, mm. yeah, that'd be a way of putting it too. I, yeah. I, I love that. I agree. I think that's a that's that's a, a brilliant. So unfortunately, at this point in our recording, the technology that appears needed to regroup, and as a consequence, we do not have the last four minutes of our conversation with Alan. Alan was kind enough to invite you, the listeners, to contact him by email on Alan A double at Alan A L L. A-N-Z-U-C-K-O-F-F dot com if you have any questions. Seb and I, we just really want to acknowledge our, our gratitude to Alan for making himself available and sharing with us today and uh, the many insights that Alan has offered us across so many different areas of understanding and relation to not just motivational interviewing but help and practice. Uh, and we also invite you to connect with us on social media at Talking to Change Facebook page or at Change Talking on Twitter. But other than that, thank you very much for listening. Until the next time, goodbye. Insight, actually, and, and, and it's got my mind racing. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.